Well, I want to invite you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to John chapter 17. No, John chapter 19. How's that for not even getting the right chapter? That's not the way to start off a sermon, but that's how we did it today. John chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 16 through 42 this morning. And if you have your pew Bible, uh, I believe that's on page 905. So you can turn to page 905 in your pew Bible. If you are visiting with us today, or if it's been a while since you've been here and just kind of been hit and miss, uh, you should know that we've been in the Gospel of John uh, pretty much since the month of February. And I love the Gospel of John. It might be my favorite book of the Bible because it just gets us right down to the essentials of what Christianity is all about. It gets us down to the essentials of the Christian faith. And I think when you read the Gospels and when you read John's Gospel in particular, everything's just kind of pointing towards the cross. It's focusing in on the cross, which is the essential defining feature of our faith. Everybody knows, at least in Western culture, that the cross is the symbol for Christianity. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, or you've been in the church for a long time, or you're just kind of acquainted with Christian culture, uh, you may have lost the whole notion of the fact that that is a really bizarre symbol. Because it is a symbol of execution. I mean, the symbol of our faith is a symbol, it's an instrument that was used to execute a criminal. And we build our lives upon the fact that someone was crucified for us, died for us, in order that we might have life. It's just a a bizarre concept when you really think about it. If you kind of try to get your mindset outside of the Christian world. But that is our hope, and that is our life. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. It comes from John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Let's read that now. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that, was now, that all was now finished, said, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. 
So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you might also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, in the Old Testament, they had this law that if you touched a dead body, you would be what they called ceremonially unclean for one week. If you are a mortician or a surgeon or someone in that field where you're around dead people quite a bit, that might be an issue for you. But for most of us in our context, in our particular life, that's just not probably something that we're terribly tempted with. I I doubt that very many of us are tempted with that particular issue to to touch a dead body. And, And really, when you think about it, we are not around death all that much. Western culture, the culture in which we live in, has tried to push that to to the side. And that has not always been the case. That's not always been the case in our lives. There was a time, and it's true for, for most people throughout the world today, that they confront death. It's a part of their regular reality. You know, one of my favorite theologians is a man by the name of John Owen. And he had 11 children. Ten of them died in infancy. The only child who was able to make it out of infancy died in adulthood before he died. He saw all 11 of his children die. That was reality for him. And that might be a little extreme, but the the sense of it is, is that people were confronted with this regularly. And we just don't see death as a regular part of our day-to-day lives. But what the point is, is that Christianity is a faith that is built entirely upon a death and about coming to terms with our own death. 
and beginning to see our death, our own mortality, in light of the death of Jesus Christ and what that actually accomplished for us. If you, if you have Christianity without a cross, if you have Christianity where you're not putting front and center the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people, then you've kind of missed the whole point. You've reduced Christianity to a supernatural self-help program or a way to, to create community development, but you have missed the point of what the gospel is all about and what Christianity is all about. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is absolutely central and it is vital that we understand what it's all about. The death of Jesus Christ tells you something. It tells you that you are guilty completely to the core of your very being and that you deserve His justice for that. When you commit something that makes you guilty, you deserve justice for it and that is what the cross is telling you. But it's also telling you this. It's telling you that through faith in Jesus, through dependence upon Him and not upon yourself, it's telling you that your guilt and the shame that accompanies that guilt has been placed upon Jesus Christ. It's all become His. And in exchange, what you get is His forgiveness and His righteousness and all of the hope of glory. That's what that exchange looks like when it happens on the cross. See, the the basis of your acceptance before God is not upon what you do, as contrary to our hardwiring as that is. The basis of our acceptance before God is not upon what you do. It's upon what Jesus Christ has done for you. And that's what we see in the cross. John wants us to see that this is the focal point of the whole Bible. I mean, the whole Bible is pointing to this event, what we had just read about in John's Gospel, in John chapter 19. It's pointing us to the cross. In fact, three times in this story, he makes it a point to bring out that this was done to fulfill Scripture. This cross was done to fulfill Scripture. And when you look at it, it just seems so counterintuitive because the way that Jesus got there was by acts of colossal hypocrisy. There's no due process that brought him there. He committed no crime. He committed no injustice. And he was crucified between two criminals, two people who justly belong there. And there's one in the middle of them who does not belong, who, who, do, who shouldn't be there because he committed nothing to actually get himself crucified. But what we see when we look at light of Scripture is that All of this happened according to plan. This was planned. This was part of the sovereignty of God and the way in which he was going to go about taking obstinate people from all walks of life and drawing them in and making them part of the Father's family and giving them the hope of glory. Theology nerds have a term for this. It's called the covenant of redemption. And you kind of see flavorings of this in Psalm 110 and Philippians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 5. And what it really is, is this agreement made in the councils of eternity between the Father and the Son, with the Holy Spirit empowering the Son, that the Son would come down to earth on Christmas and take on a human body, a true human body and soul, and dwell amongst His people, and live perfectly in their midst. 
keeping God's law perfectly, living a holy life, and that he would come to bear their guilt, the guilt of all of his people, in his body, on the cross, and actually atone for the sins so that God's justice might be done and so that his people might be redeemed. And the whole of history is pointing in this direction. If you were in Mike Byrne's Sunday school class this morning, you would have discovered that. You get to Genesis chapter 3, three chapters into the whole Bible, and you discover that this is part of the plan of God, that he has got a plan to bring back his people and make them his. And that's what the cross tells you. And it's all pointing in this direction. We are wired in the way in which we've been educated and the way in which just our world kind of functions to believe that history is cyclical that it just goes around in circles. You're born, you live, you die. Every 100 years, all new people, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and the whole bit. And that history doesn't really have any purpose, any real direction. It's not pointing to anything ultimate. But we know that when we read Scripture, and when we plumb the depths of it, and we look at our lives in light of the cross, that that is not the case that our lives are purposeful. History is purposeful. It's pointing us in a direction. We look at our lives and we see that we have a future hope. And we have a present hope and a present purpose for our life based on something that happened in the past. Namely, the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified for us. That he went to the cross to bear our guilt and that he endured the wrath of the Father so that we would not have to, so that we would get the blessings and he would get the wrath for that. See, Christianity without a cross, being huge, and at the very center of our lives, gives us no hope. There is no hope apart from the cross. John wants you to see that. All the Gospel writers want you to see that. In fact, the whole Bible points to that. And the reason why that is the case is because the Father accepted the death of His Son in our place. Jesus' death was actually sufficient for us. Don't lose sight of that, that. That His death is sufficient for you. It was accepted by the Father. The reason why you are accepted by the Father, Christian, is for one reason and one reason only. And it is because the death of Jesus Christ was acceptable to the Father. That's your only hope. That is your only hope in life and death. The cross tells you something about yourself. It tells you that you are in debt. In a debt that you could never in a million lifetimes repay. And that your debt has been paid for. Your debt has been completely paid for. In verse chapter 30, in verse 30 here, Jesus says, it is finished. And then he dies. His body becomes cold and limp when he's pierced. It's not just blood that comes out, but it's this mixture of blood and this watery-like substance. He actually dies. It is finished. And you know what he's telling you there? And what he's telling to me? He's saying that his payment for us was complete. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. His substitution for us there was complete. There needs to be no other substitute for us. Nothing more needs to be done. Nothing more needs to be added to it. See, 
I think that in the world in which we live, the reason why the cross has become not much more than a piece of wall art or a piece of jewelry is really because we've lost sight of the holiness of God. We've lost sight of this. This is not something that we regularly are giving deep attention to. We've lost sight of the demands that he makes upon our lives and what the cross tells us about that. Actually, if you, if you look at, at Galatians chapter 3, what Paul says, if, if you want to turn there with me, you can. It's on page 973 of your pew Bible. You kind of get a flavor of where they're go, we're going with this, with the cross. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is trying to bring the gospel to bear upon our lives. And he's trying to get us to see our sin, because you're never going to get to see the gospel unless you see your sin first. And this is what he says. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. What he's doing is he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 27. And he's given us the bad news of the gospel here. See, the the bad news of the gospel is that cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. And do them. All the things written in the book of the law. He's not demanding goodness from us. He's demanding perfection from us. And the reason why is because we are created in the image of of a perfectly holy God. We are created by Him and for Him, and He gets to dictate the terms of how we're to live our lives, not us. He has the authority over our lives, not us. And what He commands of us is perfect holiness, because that is who He is. It makes Him look to be as something that He is not when our lives do not reflect that holiness. But the bad news of the Gospel is that we don't meet up to it. Not even close. Not even the best of us. Come anywhere near that. And I cannot tell you how many Christians I have come across. People who claim to be Christians. People who are good people. Who go to church. Who do all of those things. Good, wonderful people. Who still, at the same time, think that their standing and their acceptance before God is based at least a little bit on the basis of what they do, of the good things that they do, and the bad things that they avoid. Do you know what Paul calls that in Galatians? He calls it a different gospel. Completely. It is not Christianity. It is something else. But it is not Christianity. And do you know what he says about those who would believe that gospel and who preach that false gospel that our works somehow in any way contribute to our acceptance before God? He says that he wishes that those who preach that message would go out and emasculate themselves. That's in the Bible. That's how seriously he takes this because it is a whole other religion altogether. It leads you completely away from Christ and it leads you to make the cross a real minimal part of your life and it makes you huge. It makes the dependence upon your standing before God based upon what you do for Him. And that's not what the cross tells you. The cross tells you that you cannot be good enough. You can never do it. 
no matter how hard you try. You can never do it. Friends, I've got to tell you this. I am probably personally aware of about 3% of my sin. Maybe you're twice as good as me. 6%. Congratulations. That's still an F-. We are loaded down with sin and corruption in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. That is reality, friends. And that's a problem. The cross tells you something, though. It tells you that there's a solution to that problem. It tells you that we are doomed, we are utterly hopeless, but that there is a solution to that problem. And it's in the cross. But a lot of us don't tend to go there, do we? We don't tend to go there when we acknowledge our sin. When we read in Scripture what Paul has to say in Romans 3, that all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and no one is righteous, not even one what our inclination is to do is to go into this over-responsible or this under-responsible mode. We go into this over-responsible, over-conscious mode and we say, well, gosh, I have to get it together. I'm a mess. I'm not aware of all my sins, so I need to buck it up and I need to follow all these rules and do all these practices and go to all these church events and participate in all of these functions and do all of this stuff because by doing it, that will get me into the good graces of God. That's the over-responsible mode. And then there's the under-responsible mode that says, and rightly, that you can never do well enough. I mean, if you try to go and, and keep all of the rules for all of your life and you build your life and your identity upon that, you are going to be a wildly depressed person because you're never going to be able to meet up to those standards. And so... You see the reality of that and you can go into under-responsible mode and you believe for no particular reason whatsoever and no biblical basis for this that God will just accept you because your good stuff has hopefully outweighed the bad stuff. And the, the problem with both of those is that they are ways to avoid Jesus Christ. Your lawlessness and your legalism are both ways to avoid Jesus Christ and to avoid the cross. Jesus wants to see that there's something different there. In fact, when you keep reading in Galatians chapter 3, if you look down at verse 13, listen to what Paul has to say here about that cross. He says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by substituting himself for us, by being cursed for us so that we wouldn't have to be cursed. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. My friends, when you hear that, don't go on autopilot. Because what Paul is doing is he's looking back at history and he's looking back at Scripture and he's looking to the cross and he's saying, Jesus is my substitute. I am guilty to the core of my very being. In fact, I am the chief of all sinners. But when I look to the cross, I discover that Jesus has paid the penalty that I deserve there. So I don't have to pay it. It's been paid for. It is finished. And that's the only reason why I have any hope. It's essential, my friends, that you get that. That you understand your own mortality in light of that. That you understand your life in light of that that you understand that that cross is the basis for your hope. 
Jesus suffered the curse of the tree in order that we might have the blessings of glory. That's what we get in the cross. You know, after our services, every Sunday, we close with a benediction. It's, it's not something we do because some people back in the 17th century somewhere thought that that would be a good idea as to how to end services. We do it because we're saying when we have our call to worship coming from Scripture and our benediction coming from Scripture that our whole worship together this morning is encompassed by God and His authority and His Word. And our whole lives as we leave here are bookmarked by His Word. Those are the bookends of our lives. But the benediction is not a wish. It's not a hope. It's a declaration of a promise that you have if you are in Christ. And one of the benedictions that we oftentimes use here is a benediction that comes from Numbers chapter 6. It's called the Aaronic Benediction. You know how it goes. Many of you could probably recite it. It says, the Lord, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious towards you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. That's not a wish upon a star. That's the promise that God gives to all of his people. But do you know how you get that promise? Do you know how you have that promise on Tuesday afternoon when all of life is just hitting you in the face, that that promise is still yours? You get that promise because Jesus was cursed. And he would have heard something different from his father than what you hear when you leave here on the Lord's Day. He would have heard something like this. The Lord curse you and forsake you. The Lord make his face to scowl upon you and be furious with you. The Lord turn his face away from you and give you hell. That's what Jesus was enduring on the cross. He was being cursed so that we would have that blessing. I don't know how many of you saw Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. I never saw it. Probably won't see it. But from what I hear in that movie, the crucifixion obviously is a centerpiece. And it is displayed with all of the gore and all of the blood, and all of the physical trauma of being executed in the most inhumane way a person could actually be executed, a person could die. Crucifixion was a miserable, awful, heinous way to die. And it was probably pictured somewhat accurately in that movie. But the physical trauma that Jesus endured on the cross is not the point. That is not the point of it. That is not why the night before Jesus was crucified that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with bursting capillaries, with actually sweating blood because he was in so much turmoil over this. It wasn't because of the physical trauma of the cross, as awful as that was. The reason why he was in such turmoil is because for the very first time in all of history, his father was going to abandon him. He was going to be left alone. 
abandoned curse. All throughout eternity, before the creation of the world, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in this perfect relationship. They're looking at each other with a grin on their face, a smile on their face. They're open and accepting and loving and vulnerable. They're in perfect fellowship with one another. Adam and Eve were actually created for this. They were created and they were put in the garden and they were what? Naked and unashamed. They were not only physically naked, but in every aspect of their lives, they were open and vulnerable and they could say, this is me and I am loved and this is you and you are loved because of that. And it's it's a reflection of the Trinity. It's a reflection of the way in which we are created in the image of God. But what happens? Sin comes. The curse comes. And where do Adam and Eve go? They run out. They hide in the bushes and they cover up. And they went from being naked and unashamed to being hidden and embarrassed. My friends, that's why you're insecure. That's why you have so much shame in your life. That's why you're so fearful and embarrassed. It's it's because of this curse that's come. It's because of this sin that is encroached upon our lives. Everyone regularly experiences those things. You all experience shame and fear and insecurity. People who say that they don't are full of beans. That's part of our life. That's part of our regular existence. And life, in so many respects, is about covering up our shame. About just trying to be accepted by other people. It's about covering up our shame. And that is why we are so reluctant to let people know that we are people with tremendous needs. That we are people with tremendous areas of brokenness, of sin. We don't want people to know that. So we hide and we cover up. The church, for some reason, is in many respects the worst of all places for this. Because somewhere we learned, somewhere along the line, that we have to come and we have to look perfect. We have to look great. We have to have our act together all of the time. We have to pretend that we're doing okay. I had a, a mentor in ministry back when we were in San Diego. We were having lunch one time, and he's been married for 40-something years, and he told me that... Never once in his 40-plus years of marriage did he and his wife ever even consider divorce. Murder twice, but never divorce. Isn't that just our reality? Maybe we didn't consider divorce, but we've considered murder. We want to kill each other. We're in relationships all the time where we feel like we'd be so much better off if that person were just eliminated from the face of the earth. We've got this corruption in our hearts that screws up our lives. The world's coming at us and it's confusing us. The enemy is trying to completely subvert our identity in Christ and life is a mess. The cross tells you that. The cross tells you that you're a person of tremendous need. You know, if you look in your bulletin, if you look in the back of the bulletin, I think we have like a list of prayer requests. It's a great thing that we have. I'm thankful that we have that. And I, and I want to challenge you to pray through those things and to pray for those people and to check in on those people. But one of the things that you'll notice about the prayer requests on there is that every single one of them 
has to do with health concerns. All of them do. Those are important things. We should be praying for that. Don't send me an email saying that I'm trying to throw this idea under the bus of being needy with our health concerns. We should pray for those things. But here's the reality. If we were all honest and all really open and stop trying to hide, we would be able to say, we've got way bigger needs than that going on in our lives. Other needs than that going on in our lives. We've got all kinds of sin that we're succumbing to. We have all kinds of temptations we're succumbing to. Our marriages are a train wreck. I'm detached from my family and from people. I withdraw. I've got parenting issues. My parents drive me absolutely insane. All of those things. That's reality. That's what's going on. And the reason why we can't go to one another in the church face to face and open up about that and ask for prayer and ask for help and ask for encouragement and ask for whatever it is that we need is because our cross is too dad gum small and we're too full of pride. It's okay to say that we have a physical need, but it's not okay to say we have a marriage need. The cross tells you that you probably have a marriage need. In fact, everybody here has that who's married. Or some other kind of relational need. Or some kind of other need going on in your life that's there because of your sin, because of somebody else's sin, because of a broken world. And the cross ought to tell you that it is okay to have that need. You have that need because you're broken down. If we included all of those needs, all those areas of sin, all those areas in which we needed to be prayed for in our bulletin on Sunday, we wouldn't have room for anything else on there. And we'd have to double up on paper because the reality of our lives is that that's there. That's our dirty laundry. The cross tells you you're needy and that you're a sinner and that you need forgiveness. It tells you that you have debt, but that the, that the debt has been paid, that it's been permanently taken away, that Jesus doesn't have to be re-crucified for you. It is finished. And because that's the case, if you've received him, you are in Christ, which means that there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. And there is nothing that you can do to add to the love of God for you. Because you are in Christ. And the love of the Father towards His Son does not ebb and flow. You are accepted, not on the basis of your merit, but on the basis of Jesus' merit that's given to you. And that means that your guilt is completely taken away. But it also means that your shame is taken away too. Shame always accompanies guilt. He, listen, He suffered the shame that you feel after you've looked at pornography. He suffered the shame that you feel because of your irresponsibility. Of the way in which you have beaten down other people in your life. When Jesus was crucified, He was probably crucified completely naked. The shame of that in public with the soldiers 
gambling for his clothes. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that he endured the cross, despising its shame. But you know what Hebrews also tells us? It tells us that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's not ashamed of you, Christian. As screwed up as you are, if you are in Him, He is not ashamed of you. His love for you can never be separated. He sings over you with joy. That's what the cross tells you. It is the most disgusting, wretched, awful thing that you can ever cast your gaze upon and at the same time it is the most beautiful, astonishing, life-giving thing that you can ever cast your gaze upon. Isn't that an amazing thing? The power of the cross. It's what Jesus was born to do. It's why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because in the councils of eternity Jesus was destined to come and be born to an unwed teenage mother in a low-rate, not even nasty Motel 6 level place so that he could come and he could live for us perfectly in every area in which we failed. And he could die the death that we deserve to die. That he could take the justice that we deserve to have in order that we might get his blessing. In order that that benediction you get after the service could actually be yours. You could take that with you. And you could build your life upon that. And upon that is a promise. Friends, that, that, is a, that is a call to everyone who believes to remember that promise. To remember that that promise is yours. And it's a call to everyone here who doesn't yet believe in Jesus. To be invited to Him. To come to Him. Either way, it's a call to rest in Him. To stop believing in yourself. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop looking to your own record. Look to Jesus' record. Look to what he's done for you. And to turn and embrace him in faith. Let's come to him now in prayer. Oh, Father, we give you thanks that although you would have been completely just to cast us all into the depths of hell, and to have your punishment placed upon us forever because we are sinners who have violated your law, yet because of your abundant mercy and your steadfast love, you have decided that you would save a people for yourself and that you would do it at such great expense that it would cost you your own begotten Son, your only begotten Son. Father, we thank you that he came and lived and died for us so that there would not only be no condemnation for us, but also that we would be set free from the power of sin, that we would be secure, that we would be unashamed. Father, my prayer is that we would marinate in that, delight ourselves in that, and that that grace would not lead us to complacency, to flippant, Christian living, but that it would lead us to faithfulness because we have already been so deeply loved. May you do that in me and may you do that in each person here. 
We pray this all for the sake of Him and in the name of Him who came such a distance for us, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.